Hello, welcome to episode 5 of Government Girl. This episode is about DC statehood, and I want to thank Facebook friend Quan Tran for the idea. This was probably the most fun I've had researching an episode, and for that longer or for that reason, it's going to be a bit longer than my normal episodes, which I try to keep around 20 minutes. This one will probably be about twice that long. And I've broken the episode up into parts so that it is still easily digestible. So there will be four parts. I'll start with interesting facts and history of Washington, D.C. Move on to part two, parts of the Constitution relevant to D.C. statehood. Part three will cover proposals to address D.C. statehood. And then part four will be other considerations and conclusions about D.C. statehood. When I set out to write this episode, I thought it was pretty simple and straightforward. I was pretty confident that I understood the arguments for and against D.C. statehood. And as I started digging, I actually learned a lot myself and found out that it's really quite complicated. There are a lot of specific constitutional provisions to be considered it's not as easy as just admitting a state the way that we admit other states um, because of some of that constitutional language. So I really had a lot of fun um, researching this. Part one, interesting facts and history of Washington, D.C. So to really understand what D.C. statehood would mean, we need to understand how our national capital came to be and why. Uh, If we're including the period under the Articles of Confederation, we've actually had nine capitals, including New York City and Philadelphia. In 1783, while the Continental Congress was meeting, disgruntled soldiers who were upset about back pay staged a mutiny against Congress and essentially barricaded them As a result, Congress was essentially driven out of Philadelphia. We're going to discuss this more later because it's going to be really relevant to why we have a national capital that isn't included in one of the states. So after they were driven out of Philadelphia, the Continental Congress bounced around a little bit um, and eventually settled into a temporary capital in New York City. In 1787, they agreed to return to Philadelphia to convene the Constitutional Convention and eventually write the Constitution that would be ratified the following year. We know that a lot of compromises had to happen to get the states on board to ratify a new Constitution. One of those compromises included naming an undeveloped area of land along the Potomac and Anacostia Rivers as the site of the new national capital that would become known as Washington, D.C. This land would be donated by Virginia and Maryland, though Virginia would soon retrocede the land. And this is also going to be important in uh, part three. The compromise that resulted in our national capital was struck to appease the competing interests of northern states represented by Alexander Hamilton and southern states represented by Thomas Jefferson. And there's a really good song on the Hamilton soundtrack that outlines this dispute if you're interested. 
Ideas floated for the capital included New York City and Philadelphia, but Thomas Jefferson feared that a capital based in the North would be hostile to the slave-based agricultural interests of Southern states. Alexander Hamilton wanted a new federal government to assume revolutionary war debts, and this was a hard sell to Southern states because many of the Southern states had already paid down many of their war debts. So this doesn't really have to do with the capital except that Alexander Hamilton is going to use this as a bargaining chip um, with Thomas Jefferson. So the two strike a deal. Alexander Hamilton would get his assumption bill where the new federal government would assume the Revolutionary War debts, and Thomas Jefferson would get his Southern-based capital. George Washington was elected the first president in 1789, and the new government started out on their first orders of business that year. The next year in 1790, at the urging of... Thomas Jefferson, the Residence Act was passed that would name Washington, D.C. as our capital. And the Assumption Bill was also passed that gave Alexander Hamilton federal assumption of war debts. However, Philadelphia would remain the temporary capital for 10 years while the new capital was being built. In 1800, the White House and the rest of the capital was finished. And the official business of the federal government was transferred from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. During these 10 years, Philadelphia uh, lobbied hard for the right to keep the capital, but to no avail. It, of course, did end up moving. And a little fun fact, George Washington never lived in the White House, though he did oversee its construction. Our second president, John Adams, would be the first president to actually live in the White House. Almost since its inception, there have been concerns about representation of those living in the federal district. Currently, there are 700,000 people living in Washington, D.C. They do have electoral votes thanks to the 23rd Amendment and they have a non-voting representative in the House. But they are not represented at all in the Senate. Their electoral votes are not based on population, but rather they get the minimum, which is three, regardless of how much their population grows. And their single representative in the House cannot even vote. So their license plate as a result of this currently reads taxation without representation part two the constitution there are three constitutional provisions that are going to be relevant to the discussion of dc statehood the district and federal enclaves clause which is found in article one section eight the admissions clause which is found in article four section three and the 23rd Amendment. So let's talk a little bit about these so we understand them. The District and Federal Enclave Clause basically says that we have to have an independent and neutral territory set up where the federal government can do business. The Constitution says that it can be no more than 10 square miles but there is no 
minimum space. However, the existence of this clause suggests that it does have to at least take up some space. It does have to actually exist. And the motivation for including this clause is important. So let's go back to that mutiny of 1783. When Congress was barricaded in by the disgruntled soldiers, they allowed a young delegate by the name of Alexander Hamilton out under the guise of discussing getting payment to the soldiers. Hamilton actually went to the Pennsylvania state government to ask them to activate the militia, and Pennsylvania declined. Basically what this did was to pit the state of Pennsylvania against the federal government. This clause was specifically written to prevent that situation from happening again in order to give the federal government an independent jurisdiction where they could do business, where they would not either favor one particular state because they were located in that state and it would not put a particular state in charge of protection and infrastructure and things like that for the federal government. So that's why the District and Federal Enclave Clause was written into the Constitution. All right, Article 4, the Admissions Clause. This delegates authority to admit new states into the Union to Congress. However, there are no specifics about what process needs to be followed or what requirements there are to admit states. Congress has a history of admitting states under many different procedures, although the most common has been passing a bill through both houses, which is what they are currently trying to do now with DC statehood. There's also a very long political history of admitting states and admitting them in twos in order to maintain balance of power in the Senate. There isn't much case law to suggest that there's any required procedure, though one standout requirement seems to be present, um, and that is the presence of a constitution for the territory being considered for statehood. This is to ensure that that territory is exercising a Republican form of government, which is guaranteed in each state by the federal constitution. And then we have the 23rd Amendment. The 23rd Amendment is what gives Washington, D.C. its three electoral votes. It does not, however, base the number of electoral votes on population like the other states do. So no matter how much Washington, D.C. grows, its representation in the Electoral College will not grow, at least not based on the 23rd Amendment. D.C. currently has a higher population than Wyoming, but yet they have the same amount of electoral votes. Based on certain proposals, which we'll discuss in our next part, the 23rd Amendment could become problematic. Um, basically, the question is what happens to those electors if D.C. becomes a state? Um, we would have to do something to address that. And because those electoral votes are given by a constitutional amendment, that something would probably have to do with another constitutional amendment. Part three, proposals to address representation in Washington, D.C. The first proposal to address this problem 
is to give D.C. statehood. So per the Constitution and the federal enclave, um, the federal district and enclave clause, we have to have a federal district that is neutral and independent. So when people talk about giving D.C. statehood, they're not talking about erasing the federal district altogether. The only way we could do that is with a constitutional amendment because that is written into the Constitution. Um, so usually what people are talking about is shrinking the federal district down to a you know minimum amount of land for the federal government to function independently. But then the vast majority of those who are living in the current district could then kind of break off and form their own state, which wouldn't become known as the Washington Douglas Commonwealth. DC statehood actually has a pretty long history. And this issue of people living in DC not being represented in Congress has, has been a problem for a while that different leaders have sought to address. So in 1967, LBJ presented a plan to give D.C. a mayor-council form of government, but the mayor and the city council would be appointed by the president. This was an attempt to give some semblance of self-government to the District of Columbia. Then in 1973, Congress passed the Home Rule Act, which gave D.C. residents the power to vote for their mayor and city council. In 1978, an amendment was proposed to give D.C. statehood. It was approved by the necessary two-thirds of Congress, but it fell short of the three-fourths of states needed to ratify. Only 16 states ratified it, and with a seven-year expiration date, the amendment eventually died. There are some constitutional questions raised by the D.C. statehood proposal. First, of course, is the district and federal enclave clause. So we know that it can't, the uh, federal district can't be any larger than 10 square miles, but there's no minimum requirement. So there's nothing in the Constitution stopping us from shrinking DC down. The question, though, is would shrinking it down to a small sliver of land fulfill the initial intent? of the district, the federal district. Um, is a small sliver of land enough for them to be able to provide their own infrastructure to keep the federal government running, to not have to rely on any of the surrounding states, and to protect against an insurrection? That's one constitutional question, one that would likely end up in the courts. And one of the reasons why some are suggesting a constitutional amendment would be required uh, to shrink D.C. Another issue that could arise with D.C. statehood is that Maryland probably would have a right to retrocede the land if it was no longer being used for the federal district. They donated the land under the specific stipulation that it was to be used for the federal district. And so if they wanted to, if it was no longer being used for that purpose, they could probably retrocede it. And then finally, the 23rd Amendment. What happens to those three electoral votes if D.C. becomes a state? So if we do nothing, then there's going to be a few hundred people who still live in the federal district, people who live and maintain our federal 
buildings like the White House, no matter what, there are going to be some people who live in the federal district. If we do nothing, those few hundred people would be awarded three electoral votes. And that would make their votes by far the most powerful votes in the entire country. So we probably wouldn't want to do nothing. Uh, we probably don't want to award three electoral votes in the precious electoral college to a few hundred individuals. So if we want to change the 23rd Amendment, the only way to do that is with another constitutional amendment. The other thing we could do is take them away. We could just completely repeal the 23rd Amendment with a new amendment. But then we still have a few hundred people who now don't have a voice in Congress or in the Electoral College. Another proposal has been for the residents of the, D the greater D.C. area to join Maryland. So instead of shrinking the district and forming a new state, we shrink the district and just push that population in with Maryland. This proposal is problematic for a few reasons. First of all, the Constitution says that both Maryland and the residents of D.C. would need to be on board with that. We're not allowed to change the composition and boundaries of states without everybody being on board per the Constitution. And there's no indication uh, that either of them are on board with that proposal. Um, so it, for that reason, probably would not work. Some of the reasons why Maryland might not be on board is because while they may gain population, which means it may give them an additional electoral vote or an additional representation in the House, it would dilute their voice in the Senate. They would also have to provide those uh, additional residents with infrastructure and services and things like that. A third proposal would be to pass another amendment um, or bill to allow DC to have senators and to give voting power to the House member without DC actually becoming a state. So we look at the 23rd Amendment and we see, okay, well, we were able to give them electoral votes without them becoming a state. Why can't we just give them representation without them becoming a state in Congress? And I think that this would get tricky in terms of violating the federal district and enclave clause because the purpose of the federal district an enclave clause is to create an independent area that is not favored by the federal government because it's in a particular state. If we did this, it would basically be like lumping the federal government in with a state under everything but in name. And so when voting in Congress, those members who are representing the D.C. area could give favor to D.C. That's why we want an independent area that does not have voting power in Congress. So this proposal, I think, would violate that idea. And even though that idea isn't explicitly written into the Constitution, I strongly feel that the courts would find that it violates the intent of the federal district and enclave clause. Part four, other considerations. One thing to think about is whether or not we actually need a constitutional amendment. So currently, D.C. statehood has passed through the House of Representatives. They voted in favor 
Um, other than the 1978 amendment that was never ratified, this is the furthest that D.C. statehood has ever gotten through Congress. But it is dead on arrival in the Senate. The Democrats would need every voting member, including the vice president, to vote in favor of D.C. statehood. And Joe Manchin has already said that he would not vote for it, not necessarily because he doesn't support D.C. statehood, but because he feels that a constitutional amendment is required uh, to make D.C. a state, and it's not something that should be passed in a narrow majority in Congress. So without him on board, uh, without any Republicans crossing the aisle, which they won't, D.C. statehood is, is dead in the Senate. So let's look at Manchin's claim that we do need a constitutional amendment. We know we don't need a constitutional amendment just to add a state because we've added all of our states without constitutional amendments. But the fact that this is our federal district and there is some constitutional language that governs the federal district, it makes it a little bit tricky. We know that the Constitution doesn't stipulate size or location of the federal district. It never says that it has to be in D.C. And it just says that it can't be more than 10 square miles, but there's no minimum size. We would need to address the 23rd Amendment. And in order to address the 23rd Amendment, we would need some sort of constitutional amendment. We do know that the word permanent was scrapped from the language of the clause, presumably to allow for flexibility in where the capital was located and if it could ever be moved. We also know, though, that Madison and the Federalist Papers made it clear that the framers realized there would be some people living in the federal district and they would not have direct representation in Congress. And Madison's response to this was that Congress as a whole represents everybody in DC, even though they don't get that direct representation that they actually get to vote for. So do we need a constitutional amendment? I think a constitutional amendment certainly would make DC statehood stronger. I think if we do it through Congress without an amendment, it is very likely going to be challenged in the courts. Whereas if we do it by constitutional amendment, there would be no question about it. I don't think that the Constitution specifically requires a change in order to shrink the federal district. But I do think that there are enough constitutional questions about the federal district and enclave clause that a constitutional amendment would be the ideal way to do it. The other consideration is politics. We can't get away from politics. Politics have always been a part of how and why we admit states. And when we look at it, you know, those 700,000 voters, the majority of them are going to vote Democrat. Not surprisingly, it's Democrats that are pushing for D.C. statehood. And also, not surprisingly, it is Republicans that are resisting statehood. Both are getting very creative to justify their positions beyond politics and say, no, this isn't just politics. Some Republicans are saying, well, D.C. doesn't have enough infrastructure. They don't have mining or <laughs> any other number of uh, pieces of infrastructure that other states might have. Um, that is not a constitutional requirement to become a state. So they're getting creative to try to push back on the idea that this is just political, but it is. And, and it's nothing new. It always has been political, the admittance of states and the balance of power, particularly in the Senate. So conclusions. What's right here? 
you know, if we strip away the politics, which I know is difficult to do, we're looking at about 700,000 people who don't have representation in Congress. I tend to err on the side of the more representation there is, the better. Our democracy is stronger when we get closer and closer to the one person, one vote value of democracy. Now, I know we're not a direct democracy. I know it's never going to be perfect, one person, one vote. I get that. We're a republic. We are a representative form of democracy. And a country our size, it's just too difficult logistically to, to have one person, one vote, and to have everybody's vote count exactly the same. However, I think we should always be striving in that direction. And I think the more people who are represented, the better. I also think that we do need to look at, you know, these 700,000 people, their voice matters. The majority of these 700,000 people are also black. And this is a group that is historically been disenfranchised. I mean, you know, they weren't able to vote when our constitution was written. Is the solution that DC becomes a state? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's the best solution. I don't, you know, maybe there's some other better solutions that were outlined that could make everybody happy. Maybe there's something we haven't thought of yet that could help maintain the balance of power that would make Republicans feel okay with admitting DC as a state. But I do think that it matters that 700,000 people don't have a voice in Congress and that a lot of those people are people who have historically been disenfranchised. I think that matters and I think it's something that we do need to look at. Something that I started with thinking was simple and that I had a you know clear understanding of it and actually became very complicated as I did additional research has kind of come full circle and is back to being very simple to me. There's 700,000 people that don't have a voice in Congress and they should. They should have representation. Those people are Americans just like everybody else and I think they deserve the same voice. I like to think that I will carry that opinion regardless of whether it favors Republicans or Democrats. I know that's hard to do and say, but I genuinely believe that that would be my position either way. As I close this episode, I do want to cite some of the sources that I used. I utilized the Congressional Research Service Reports on D.C. statehood for my research, and I also used the 1978 unratified amendment provided by the National Archives Pieces of History blog. I also want to give a special thanks to my AP Government Teachers Facebook page, particularly online colleague Jill McGarvey posted a question on DC statehood and what ensued was a great conversation and a great sharing of resources from which I garnered a lot of the sources that I ended up using for this episode. So I wanted to give a special shout out to that page. I also want to take a moment at the close of my fifth episode to thank a few people who helped get my podcast off the ground. First of all, I want to thank Trey Kaufman, whose technological expertise in podcasting helped me get over the hump 
of learning how to start a podcast. And without his help, I would have taken much longer and I may even have not done it. So thank you, Trey. And Trey has his own podcast called The Mosaic Life. It is a guided meditation, conversation, and interviews with thought leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. So check out Trey's podcast, The Mosaic Life. I also want to thank colleague Jill Williams, who encouraged me time and time again to start a podcast. And her final urging was kind of the push that I needed to go out and buy a $100 microphone, uh, which of course indicated I couldn't turn back. And I want to thank Ann Fisher. Ann Fisher has a radio show on WOSU locally here in Columbus, Ohio. It's called All Sides with Ann Fisher. It's on Monday through Friday from 10 to 12. Check it out. Ann has had me on her show a couple of times and has advertised Government Girl, helping me reach a much wider audience than I otherwise would have. So thank you, Ann. That does it for episode five of Government Girl. As always, if there are any gaps left by this episode and you have questions or if you have suggestions for a future episode, tweet me at GovGirl614. Thank you.